This episode is dedicated to the memory of American astronaut Scott Carpenter, 1925 through 2013. Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 34 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Group Flight, Vostok 3 and 4. After the successful flight of Germán Titov in August of 1961, Chief Designer Korolov concentrated his department on getting the military spy satellite version of Vostok, which was called Zenit, to work. Most observers expected the next Soviet manned spaceflight to be flown soon after Titov's Vostok 2, but that was not the case. However, also in 1961, Korolev began pushing for a three-day spaceflight as a follow-up to Vostok 2. Unfortunately, the mission was opposed by the head of cosmonaut training, Nikolai Kamanin, and the astronauts themselves, who were concerned about unforeseen health effects that might result from extending space flights too quickly. Discussions had also been held about having a group flight as well, which meant flying more than one Vostok into orbit at the same time. Initially, the idea was to fly three spacecraft, but soon a consensus was reached to fly two vehicles. In February of 1962, the U.S. put John Glenn into orbit. This prompted Soviet leadership to suddenly ask Korolev to launch the next space spectacular promptly. To make this mission truly spectacular, the Soviets eventually decided to launch a group flight of two Vostoks lasting up to three days. The official purpose of the mission was to determine the ability of the human body to function in conditions of weightlessness and test the endurance of the Vostok 3KA spacecraft over longer flights. Another objective was the study of how the reactions of two cosmonauts might differ during a series of tests under similar circumstances. The close orbits and near rendezvous of the two spacecraft would keep the number of variables to a minimum, allowing for the measurement of individual differences in adaptation to spaceflight. The Vostok 3 and 4 spacecraft were 3KAs, essentially the same as the one used for Vostok 2, except Vostok 3 and 4 both were upgraded to increase the volume of information collected about the flight conditions and the crew, and they also had better communications equipment. The launch vehicle for both Vostok 3 and 4 was the same type used for Vostok 2, an 8K-72K. Cosmonaut selection for the mission had begun in February of 1962. Kamanin narrowed the team down to Nikolaev, Popovich, Nelyubov, and Baikovsky. Eventually, it would be Nikolaev in Vostok 3 and Baikovsky as his backup, 
and Popovich in Bostock 4 with Nell Uboff as his backup. The launch was planned for March 10th through 12th. But in February of 1962, Korolev was having problems with the Zenit spy satellite. And to make matters worse, there was only one operational launch pad at Baikonur for the large 8K-72 type launch vehicles that Zenit and Vostok both required. Problems with the Zenit continued into March. This pushed the manned mission to the end of March or the beginning of April. In the meantime, Korolev asked his radio electronics expert, Boris Chertoff, to ensure reliable communications between the two spacecraft and the capability of ground control to monitor these contacts. Chertoff and his colleagues started intense training involving radio engineers, antennas specialists, and communications personnel. In April, a launch of a Vostok 8K-72 had a third-stage failure. This put doubt in everyone's mind that the rocket was ready. But on April 26, the first Zenit-2 spy satellite announced as Cosmos-4 reached orbit successfully. Another launch of the Zenit spacecraft was planned for around May 5th through the 10th. The manned mission date slipped again to May 20th through the 30th. Then the second Zenit launch ended with a first stage failure and a fiery crash of the entire vehicle just 300 meters from the launch pad. Even worse, one of the strap-on boosters of the rocket fell off while still on the pad and its fire caused considerable damage to the facility. The manned mission had to be delayed until the end of July at the earliest. By the beginning of July, Vladimir Barman, the head of Launch Systems Development, announced that all the repairs to the launch complex would be completed by August 1st. On July 16th, Leonid Smirnov called a meeting of the Military Industrial Commission to review the dual manned space flight. At that meeting, a presentation was made about the radiation levels in the upper atmosphere after a U.S. high-altitude nuclear test, Operation Starfish. The Soviets believed that the radiation levels would fall back to normal within 5 to 10 days, so this delayed the launch to somewhere between August 5th and August 10th. And now some of the additional training and duties the cosmonauts had for this mission. Kermon Titov had suffered space sickness during his record-breaking one-day mission aboard Vostok 2. This condition was unknown at the time, leading Soviet scientists to devote efforts to study the effect of spaceflight on the human body. Training for this mission was expanded to condition cosmonauts against space sickness. Informed by Titov's experience in Vostok 2, Nikolaev and Popovich thoroughly rehearsed their spacecraft maneuvers and other planned activities in simulator. Korolev's engineers also asked the pilots to observe each other's ships and free-flying upper stages of their launch vehicles. Moreover, they assigned Nikolaev on board Vostok 3 to watch the launch of the second spacecraft, Vostok 4, a day later. A first proposed for both pilots on Vostok 3 and 4 would be an attempt 
to unbuckle their seat belts and fly weightless in the cabin. Neither Titov or Gagarin had had that opportunity, and the Mercury astronauts simply did not have enough room. On July 27th, several cosmonauts tried the procedure in simulated weightlessness on board a Tu-104 aircraft. Both cosmonauts were also assigned to conduct a series of Earth observation sessions, which were planned based on the experience accumulated during the Vostok 2 mission a year earlier. Nikolaev was assigned to photograph the Earth's surface, while Popovich was to focus on the horizon and the Terminator line. In addition, both vehicles had movie cameras intended to document the pilots during the flight. And now the final days before launch. On the insistence of Korolev, on July 28th, another Zenit 2 spy satellite blasted off with the main goal of certifying the safe operation of the Vostok rocket and retesting some of the systems on the manned spacecraft. With the Zenit safely in orbit under the official name of Cosmos 7, the State Commission convened on July 30th and set the manned launches for August 9th and 10th. Three days later, numerous specialists, officials, and cosmonauts started arriving at Baikonur. Nikolaev and Popovich flew in on two separate passenger planes on August 2nd, accompanied by numerous Air Force and Training Center specialists. Korolev and his top engineers arrived a day later. By that time, the spacecraft for Vostok 3 had already passed final test, but the capsule for Vostok 4 still needed some work that could delay the launch by one or two days. On August 4th, both Vostok pilots tried on their flight suits. They also attached their parachute system and then sat inside their spacecraft, where they tested onboard recording and communications gear. They were instructed on how to observe their upper stages and each other's ships. On August 5th, Engineers made a third attempt to complete testing of the Vostok 4 spacecraft, while top specialists gave cosmonauts more training with parachute, radio, and landing systems. On the evening of August 6, Korolev chaired a technical meeting which confirmed that both spacecrafts and their rockets were ready for launch on August 10th and August 11th. On the afternoon of August 7th, Nikolaev made another test suiting up, and sat in his ejection seat, also practicing unbuckling and buckling up again. The state commission overseeing the launch convened at 7 p.m. and formally announced the crew, Nikolaev, would be pilot of Vostok 3, and Popovich would launch on board Vostok 4. On August 8th, engineers continued their frantic work to prepare Vostok 4's capsule. Korolev rescheduled the Vostok 3 launch to August 11th. Given the very tight schedule of the two launches from the same pad, the launch vehicle with Vostok 3 was scheduled for rollout from the assembly building around 1900 in the evening of August 9th, instead of the traditional morning time. However, shortly before the move, an uncertified fastener was discovered in a backup ejection seat. That fastener was earlier supposed to be replaced with a large piece on both flight 
and backup seats. While the seat for Vostok 4 was still in processing, the seat for Vostok 3 was already on board and had to be carefully taken out of the vehicle for checks. Finally, at 2100, Vostok 3 rolled to the launch pad. On August 10th, at 1315, Nikolaev and Baikovsky came to the launch pad and had a formal meeting with the launch personnel. Nikolaev and Baikovsky, accompanied by Korolev, then rode an elevator to the top of the rocket, and Nikolaev sat for half an hour inside the spacecraft as Korolev was giving him updates on the latest changes to the equipment. At 1400, Nikolaev and Popovich went to have their medical test. At 1700, the cosmonauts were instructed on various contingencies during the flight. During the evening of August 10th, rumors started among journalists in Moscow that a space spectacular was imminent. Soviet journalists had been told to watch the radio news closely in the days to follow. A much longer flight than that of Vostok 2 was one possibility mentioned, but also the launch of two cosmonauts was mentioned. On the morning of August 11, 1962, Nikolaev and Baikovsky left their small cottage at Site 2 and went to the assembly building for suiting up. A bus then delivered them to the launch pad and Nikolaev climbed into the Vostok 3 spacecraft. The launch took place as scheduled at 8.30 Universal Time and the spacecraft was placed in a low Earth orbit eight minutes later. The orbital perigee was 166 kilometers and the apogee was 218 kilometers with a period of 88.5 minutes. Nikolaev tried but failed to catch a glimpse of the rocket's upper stage flying away. During his fourth orbit, Nikolaev had a telephone conversation with Premier Khrushchev, but by his own admission, heard only half of it due to the very loud noise in the radio system. The problem was repaired by the end of the first day in orbit. Later in the first day, Nikolaev very carefully unbuckled from his seat and floated around the cabin, easily practicing his radio and using a film camera. He would eventually fly free for four times during his mission. Back at Baikonur, Vostok 4 launched less than 24 hours after Vostok 3 at 8.08 Universal Time on August 12th. Both vehicles were launched from the same launch pad within 0.5 seconds from the scheduled time, a huge achievement in itself. Vostok 4 was placed in a low Earth orbit with a perigee of 159 kilometers and an apogee of 211 kilometers. The orbital period was 88.2 minutes. On Vostok 3, Nikolaev oriented his spacecraft in order to monitor the liftoff of Vostok 4, but unfortunately he could not see the launch. Yet, Nikolaev reported that while flying over Turkey, he had an excellent opportunity to watch cities and easily distinguished airport runways, ships at sea, and roads and piers. As Vostok 4 completed 29 orbits, telemetry showed that temperature on board the spacecraft fell from 27 degrees C at launch to 13 degrees C and remained at that level until orbit 36. 
Data also showed that during the 10 night orbits, the vehicle's onboard telemetry system was not working at all. Also, there was some confusion in the West about the capability of the Vostok spacecraft. Data on the two spacecraft orbital parameters that were released periodically by Soviet news agency TASS seemed to indicate a change in Vostok 3's orbital trajectory within 10 hours of Vostok 4's launch, leading to the speculation that Vostok 3 modified its orbit to bring it closer to Vostok 4. Of course, the Vostok spacecrafts were unable to modify their orbit. The close distance was achieved by precise timing of the launch and the accuracy of the launch vehicle. Plans were for the spacecraft to approach as close as 5 kilometers, but the closest distance achieved was 6.5. At the start of Vostok 3's 33rd orbit, this distance had diverged to 850 kilometers and to 2,850 kilometers at the start of the 64th orbit. Nikolaev and Popovich made contact with one another via shortwave radio soon after their spacecrafts approached one another. They would maintain regular ship-to-ship communications over the course of their mission in addition to their contact with the ground. This was the first ship-to-ship communications in space, as well as the first time more than one manned spacecraft was in orbit at the same time, giving Soviet mission controllers the opportunity to learn to manage this scenario. Both Nikolaev and Popovich spent time out of their seats each day, conducting a series of tests to determine their ability to maneuver and work in conditions of weightlessness. Each test was said to last about one hour. The physical and mental state of the cosmonauts was monitored, Biometric sensors relayed the cosmonauts' vital statistics to the ground. The cosmonauts' behavior and coordination was observed via cabin-mounted video camera, and the cosmonauts' ability to perform various operations in coordination with ground controllers was considered. The cosmonauts' speech was monitored both by controllers on the ground and one another. The results of the test were deemed positive evidence of the ability of humans to function and work over long periods in microgravity. Attention was also paid to the cosmonauts' ability to sleep, and their vital signs were monitored during their sleep periods. Nikolaev reported that he slept well, but always woke after only six hours of his scheduled eight-hour sleep period. On August 13th, a greeting to the Scandinavian peoples was sent from Vostok 3. At 1338 Universal Time, it was picked up in Danderit outside Stockholm. The message read, From the Soviet spaceship Vostok 3, I am sending greetings and the best wishes to the Scandinavian peoples. On August 14th, Nikolaev and Popovich woke up around 0400 Moscow time. Soon a ground station near Khabarovsk relayed a message from Nikolaev Quote, feeling great, flying according to program, end quote. Similar information came from Popovich. With the good news, the State Commission convened at 0700 with an agenda to schedule the Vostok 3 mission landing during its 65th orbit after four days, with Vostok 4 returning after three days and 49 orbits.
The next day, August 15th, upon waking up at 0400, Popovich in Vostok 4 assured ground control that he was in excellent health, but the temperature decline in the cabin was worrying him. Steps he had taken to alleviate the problem did not have any effects. Kamanin, who had spent the whole night monitoring the situation and querying various specialists, was now upset and demanding a landing. The state commission started work at 0700 in the morning. By that time, ground control had received information that the temperature on board Vostok 4 had fallen to just 10 degrees C, and the humidity had declined to 35%, prompting the medical team also to demand an immediate landing. Now, Keldish, Kamanin, Rudinko, all voted for bringing back Vostok 4 to Earth during the originally planned 49th orbit. However, Smirnov and other officials who had just gotten approval from Khrushchev for a four-day flight felt embarrassed to return the ship after less than three days. They were inclined to press ahead with the approved program. Finally, in the midst of the discussion, a radio message was delivered from Popovich, reporting the code word GROSA, which means thunderstorm. In the glossary of code words used by the secretive Soviet space program, GROSA meant a severe motion sickness reaching vomiting. Now practically everybody was demanding the immediate return of Vostok 4, which was just 40 minutes away from the point where the mission had to be committed to the re-entry in order to reach a planned landing site. However, Smirnov and Korolev still insisted on talking to Popovich first. Despite assurances from Popovich during the next communication session that he had only seen a meteorological thunderstorm and he was not vomiting, the majority still voted to bring Vostok 4 down at the original landing time after three days. After a flight of four days for Vostok 3 and three days for Vostok 4, it was time to land. Nikolaev fired his retro rocket pack and returned to Earth on August 15, 1962, landing at 6.52 Universal Time, north of Lake Balkhash in Kakistan. His landing site was strewn with rocks, but he was lucky enough to find a small spot free of obstacles. Six minutes later, Popovich touched down 305 kilometers to the west in very windy conditions. As usual, both cosmonauts ejected from their capsules and descended with their own parachutes. At 0741 Universal Time, Radio Moscow announced that an important message would soon be broadcast. And seven minutes later, Yuri Leviton's booming voice was heard announcing the landing of both spaceships. Here's the U.S. newsreel on the flights. The Russians chalk up another victory in the space race as they put two manned spacecraft into orbit within 24 hours of each other. Colonel Pavel Popovich and Major Andrian Nikolaev follow in the footsteps of two other Russian astronauts, Titov and Gagarin, and thus give the Soviets four manned orbital flights against two for the United States. Within 72 hours, the first panel off traveled more than a million miles, four times the distance to the moon, a distance it would take a jet airliner two and a half months to fly. 
Vostok 3rd orbited, Vostok 4 followed on its heels at one time within 75 miles, proving that a contact in outer space was possible. Tracking stations indicate that there is little doubt of the success of the Russian feat that is seen as two years ahead of the U.S. effort. The Soviets made the most of the flight in their worldwide propaganda and televised pictures of the astronauts from outer space. Naturally, there was jubilation in Russia, and the crowds followed the progress of the new heroes in Red Square. The Vostok 3 mission lasted 94 hours, and the Vostok 4 mission lasted 71 hours. The Soviet manned spaceflight record exceeded John Glenn's brief mission by 60 orbits. Both cosmonauts fared well in microgravity and proved that humans could work in that environment. The simultaneous flight of two Vostok spacecraft and their proximity in orbit prompted some speculations in the West that the Soviets already mastered the rendezvous technique. Of course, TASS never bothered to clarify that the Vostok had no orbital correction capabilities. And finally, during one of the close rendezvous, Nikolaev was able to sight Popovich in Vostok 4. All in all, another great success for the Soviet Union space program and more political ammunition for Khrushchev. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.